Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast. Small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson. I'm here with Dr. CSC. Hey, CS, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. And today we have two really wonderful guests to talk to us about racial disparities in healthcare and GI. We have Dr. Sandra Casada from the University of Maryland in Baltimore, yep. as well as Dr. Carlos Diaz from University of Miami. And both of them are leaders in the HEA Diversity Committee and on the Equity Project. So what are you excited to hear about, Matt? So for me, I am really excited to hear what they're doing on the AGA Diversity Project, which was an initiative launched, I believe, in April or May of this year, and where that's going over the next three-year initiative. I'm also really excited to kind of hear what things we can do as individuals, as providers, as educators in the realm of racial disparities within GI, and how we can improve our own practice, but also really how we can be educating the future GI physicians to be better than us, which is always what we're trying to do. So that's what I'm really excited about. Obviously, I think they're both two dynamic desks, so I'm excited to talk to them just overall. What about you? Is there a particular thing you're looking forward to hearing about? I'm really excited about hearing how we can be advocates for patients who might Mm. be more vulnerable and do have these disparities and have been maybe excluded in the past from opportunities that were afforded to others, whether it's colorectal cancer screening, vaccination. So they really give great examples of how we as providers, you know, we are the people, like we can change what's in the past and also um, bring about equity. I think the two of them are also, I don't know if you found this, but they're inspirational people to listen to. Like they, you know, I left our conversation just kind of eager to get to work. So I think uh, everyone listening is going to enjoy hearing what they have to say. Absolutely. So let's get started. Fantastic. Let's do it. Dr. Sandra Kazada, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Uh, so I'm Sandra Kazada. I'm an associate professor of medicine in, in gastroenterology and hepatology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Um, in I actually I serve there as associate dean for admissions as well as assistant dean for faculty diversity and inclusion. And at the AGA, I am the outgoing chair of the diversity committee. So this is my third and final year. Uh, we, we switch, you know, we hand over the the torch right at DDW. And I am the current co-chair for the AGA Equity Project, where I get to work with Carlos, since he is a fellow member on our Equity Project Advisory Board. I think that's a perfect lead-in. So, Dr. Carlos Diaz, you want to introduce yourself? My name is uh, Dr. Carlos Diaz, as mentioned, aka Carlos, please. I'm still a fellow. Uh, but I am the uh, chief uh, GI and hepatology fellow at the uh, University of Miami. I grew up uh, down here in Miami, and I went to medical school at Rush, and then I came back down to Miami because I missed it so much to complete my residency, chief residency, and now uh, my GI fellowship, which I did last year. I have done some work with uh, Dr. Patricia Jones in uh, racial disparities, particularly in uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, and uh, a couple other uh, things like uh, some other projects uh, that we've worked on looking at multidisciplinary tumor board and 
how screening could affect sometimes the patients with HCC as well. And it's an honor to be here. I am also on the uh, equity, uh, social equity team, you would say, or the task force uh, for the AGA. And it's been an honor so far to make uh, hopefully some impact in the world. We're so happy to have both of you here for the podcast. Maybe if we can start out with just definitions and foundations. I know it's been passed around a lot in not just gastroenterology, medicine, business settings like equity, diversity, race. But how would you guys define it and how should we define it in this podcast? So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll jump in if that's okay with you, Carlos. And then please, you know, please add, I think I've left something out. I think that, you know, the concepts of like diversity, equity, and inclusion are much more readily defined than race. Um, So I'll start with those. You know, I think diversity, we all usually have a pretty reasonable sense and idea of, of what we're talking about, which just sort of means that sort of breadth of variety and and seeing you know multiple differences and representation across multiple identities, uh, whether that's across gender or country of origin and race and ethnicity and religion and age, you know ability status, and, you know so so many different facets of one's identity, I think, are oftentimes what we think about when we're looking at diversity and just recognizing the the benefits that we have when we see increased diversity, you know, not only in sort of, you know, the biodiverse, you know, natural world, but also in our business sector and in academia that, you know, the diversity of background and thought really do yield more productive, rich discussion, as well as uh, more effective results. So I think that, you know, diversity and inclusion, interestingly, though, I feel like they always go together and people kind of throw them around together like peanut butter and jelly. You just hear like diversity and inclusion all the time. And you almost, yeah, you just sort of, you almost stop thinking about what they mean because they go together so often. So, you know, um, I actually got in a, I got in like a, heated discussion with my husband about this the other day because he was like, you know, I was I was having this conversation about the lack of diversity in leadership in academic medicine. And they kept saying that's an inclusion problem. And I said, no, it's a diversity problem because there's not diversity in leadership. And I was like, I think you're both saying the same thing, actually, but technically I agree with the person who's talking calling this an inclusion issue because that's what inclusion is. It, it means that we're, we are bringing in diversity at multiple levels and through multiple facets of whatever our organization or institution is. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with Verne Myers. Uh, she's an author. She wrote a book called What If I Say the Wrong Thing? And in that book, she coined the phrase, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. And to me, that like kind of helps solidify that it's like it's not just about who's here, but are all the people here being fully allowed to engage and participate and have all the opportunity that's available equally and, and equitably across that group? And I always like to say, I think even better inclusion is not just being asked to dance, but being asked to be on the planning uh, committee for the next party. So you can decide when it's happening and what music are we playing? Like that's, that's really being inclusive. So, and then equity, you know, I I like to think of it as distinguishing it from equality, um, because, you know, equality, we look at, or think about, you know, equal rights, for example, or giving equal access, equal opportunities, 
equal, meaning sort of same, right? But if we really want to offer the same opportunity and the same access, then what equity does is it means that, yes, we seek to do that, but we recognize that in order to do that, we have to understand the history and we have to understand the context and the fact that there are groups in our in our nation and in our nation's history that have been marginalized and have been disenfranchised. And therefore, you if you give just sort of the same support or access, you're not going to get to the same outcome. You have to actually target whatever barriers uh, still exist in order to then really achieve the sort of equality that, that we want. Through equity, you're, you're both identifying and dismantling those barriers and then providing equal access and opportunity that way. And what was the other word? Ah, race. Good old race. This is the hard one. And actually, I challenge my students uh, in, you know, in medical school and actually my GI fellows. And we're like, you know, I gave a talk and I was like, well, why don't you tell me what's race? What is race? How do you define it? Right. And there's always this like long silence, long pause. Nobody wants to jump in first. I'm like, that's good. You should pause. You should feel a little uncomfortable. And like, you don't quite know because the reality is, is it's been presented in so many different ways. They're like different uh, for, for centuries. People have had their own theories and, and said like, there's this number of race, you know, there's three or four races and other people, there's 15 races and it's, oh, it's based on these biological or physical features. And sometimes even they would attribute behavioral features, but you know, with what's, what's certain and what's been well-documented is that in every scenario, race where it first really started to become a thing was really appearing in the literature in a way that it established hierarchy. So it was not only seeking to categorize humans, but to do so in a hierarchical way where the white race is at the top of that hierarchy. And then, you know, whatever other categories you have, which often were considered like yellow race and red race and black race, often at lower rungs of this hierarchy. And it was oftentimes in a in an effort to, I think, make slave traders, for example, or people who were um, purchasing slaves feel better about that scenario and say, well, we were we're better and we're actually doing these other race, you know, particularly the black race. When we talk about slavery, we're doing them a favor, literally, that this is the way it's been presented. So suffice it to say that, you know, genetically speaking, race does not fall within any sort of genetic category, you know, and and what we've seen through the Human Genome Project is that all humans are 99.9% genetically identical, right? So there's 0.1% difference across any human. There's more genetic diversity and variation within races than there are across races. And those differences don't fit within racial categories. So that's the challenge, I think, in medicine that we have is that we've sort of historically been taught to think that disparities that pop up, racial disparities, can be explained because we're somehow biologically different by race. But clearly, race, you know, what I'm sure a lot of people here know is race is a social construct. And actually, I even like Dr. Kendi, if anyone's read Dr. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, he, I think, sort of takes it a step further. And he says, race is a power construct because it was always utilized and and it's it's ingrained sort of as an as a way to establish power and hierarchy 
I think you you gave a great overview of so many different times of topic types of topics that you know they've been very uncomfortable for a lot of people to answer and even talk about. To be frank, I'll be a little bit more short and to and concise because I think that you went over a lot of the things that we like to uh, talk about uh, and that we do talk about in our group sessions in the social equity task force. But one of the things that I would like to say is that sometimes there's this you know confusion between race and ethnicity. And the reason why, especially in medicine, why that's important is because we use ethnicity to help stratify and risk stratify our patients into certain categories. And it is important. It is important for us to do that as providers so that we could provide the best care for them, knowing whatever their risks are for whatever disease that we're we're following them for, whether it be African-Americans with colon cancer, et cetera. And race, you get put into this category. And I think about it as, you know, you have this you know, whatever race person or whatever you call them to be their race, show up to your clinic and you deem them having this stereotype that might be going on. And I, I feel that that's where that needs to be put aside and look at it versus a, an ethnicity and not a race um, as they come to you. And then going further in terms of equity, the way I look at it is is equity means that you have a stake in what opportunity you have. Whether that be, if you could look at it on Wall Street, a private equity firm, you know, they all have a stake because they all bought in. Well, everybody here has earned the right to have that stake in whatever is the opportunity that they have uh, at getting to places, doing things, uh, whether it be patient access to things, whether it be physicians, providers, nurse practitioners, nurses, anyone getting to wherever they want to be in their life. Um, And there shouldn't be any stop gaps in that. I think those are the two things that I, I like to focus on when I think of of all the definitions that you mentioned, uh, but race, ethnicity, and equity, I think, are are some that I can at least put some tangible definitions to because the other ones are, quite frankly, I'm not smart enough as, as yourself, uh, Sandra, to, to fully grasp all of them, and they are hard, and I think that's part of the discussion here today. So I, th- I think that's a wonderful overview from both of you. Let's take that and let's kind of maybe turn it towards some of the disparities in healthcare that we've been seeing. Obviously, 2020, uh, beginning of 2021, we've seen a lot of issues that have come up. I think it's become more of a focus within GI, within the COVID era. So how do we begin addressing or what are you guys seeing in terms of the healthcare disparities that are affecting different sects of the population and the access to the healthcare the poor outcomes in certain groups, uh, particularly with COVID. Where are we at with that? Give us an overview, and then maybe we can dive in to some GI-specific areas. So actually, we we are very fortunate down here at the University of Miami for uh, Dr. Fauci to give our grand rounds earlier this month. And, uh, you know, he, he spoke about this, and one of his uh, topic points is that there's clear evidence, scientific evidence, okay, that I think that's the important thing to to understand, scientific evidence that minorities not only contracting the illness, much more so than their counterparts, but also dying from it. And I think that we need to, one, accept this as a possibility instead of shun it as something. You know, we've seen this throughout a lot of different diseases, not just COVID, uh, but we're seeing it in staggering numbers. And I could tell you, that being, you know, uh, on a fellow, this, this has been a, an unbelievable journey over the past year and a half in my training to, you know, get to experience this. There was so much, you know, fear and everything that had to go with it in the early months of it. And then you sort of just fall into this calm state of, I guess I should say, calm chaos. 
as you would say, uh, you know, we, we were pulling GI fellows to, to cover different units. But what I could tell you is in my experience, I saw racial minorities at such an extent compared to uh, their white counterparts basically die much faster anecdotally in front of me. I knew that the evidence was there scientifically, but I just, I just saw it. I saw so many and, and in huge numbers. And it just plays this, this huge impact psychologically on you is how can you make this better? What can we do to, to improve upon this? And, and those are answers that, you know, I talk about with, you know, my, my, uh, my faculty and stuff, that, you know, what are, what are different system improvements that we can make to, to do this? And really it comes down to preventative care and educating our patients as best as we can, not just in the clinic, but in a broad way, you know, whether we get the word out there when, when uh, the vaccine came out and we were able to uh, tell not only celebrities, but healthcare professionals to get vaccinated, you know, that actually made a huge impact, uh, believe it or not, in some of the patients that I saw that they saw so many people on Instagram and Facebook and everything getting vaccinated that it really like they saw this this unbelievable amount of people being able to, to make a change. And, you know, people in high places saying this is something that's good for you. Um, uh, and and those are those are the things that we really need to say. One, this is actually something that's happening. OK, and, and accept it and to try and make an impact to stop it. Yeah, absolutely, Carlos. I mean, I, so first of all, I think Dr. Fauci, I love that he was there and I feel like he's everywhere. He spoke at Maryland too. I mean, I think he's like, I don't know how he, how he does it. He's amazing. He's accepting all offers right now. He's amazing. And so what he did for us, I I think was a really cool thing at, um, you know, University of Maryland in Baltimore, you were a majority black city. We are taking care of you know, patients who live in areas that are still um, very much living the consequences of redlining. So, you know, neighborhoods that were purposefully excluded from funding and support and resources, and and unfortunately, in many ways, still are today. And so, so there's that. And then there's just sort of the, also in Baltimore, you know, we're not the only place in the country, there's like Tuskegee, right? So hopefully everybody knows about that. But in Baltimore, we've also, we have a history of a, a lead paint study and, you know, Henrietta Lacks. I mean, there, there are several times uh, in the history of academic medicine and medical bio, biomedical research in Baltimore that have resulted in this like very justified hesitation, doubt, distrust of medicine and the healthcare system and and research and everything that sort of goes along with that. So what he did was we had this panel of uh, faith leaders, community faith leaders in around the city, uh, as well as uh, some of our vaccine vaccine, um, specialists, you know, the researchers that help at the Center for Vaccine Development, and then Dr. Fauci. And he just was amazing and um, really kind of recognizing the overlap of faith and science and trust and how we kind of have to come and think about all of these things and sort of just thinking holistically about our patients. And then, right, that they don't I guess it gets back to what Carlos was saying, like the, our patients don't live in a vacuum, right? So they are impacted absolutely by their culture and, and what, what that means in terms of what access to fresh food um, they might have or to good education, like all those different social determinants of health that ultimately do result in, I would argue, especially if you're somebody who lives in a very under-resourced area, 
then, you know, if you don't have the right preventive care, like Carlos was saying, then you're more likely to have some underlying medical conditions that then make you more prone to have the complications for severe disease if you contract COVID. And guess what? Because of your social circumstance, you're an essential worker. And so you don't have the option of working through, you know, telehealth or whatever you're, you know, through your computer screen, you have to show up. So, you know, greater risks and opportunities to, to be exposed and get infected and then also to, to suffer worse disease outcomes. And also, again, if we're talking about mistrust, then maybe you're also going to wait a little bit longer before you approach the, the healthcare community in, in, in seeking help because you're like, maybe you're waiting it out. And you're like, hey, some people pull through this thing. Maybe it's going to be okay. And by the time they're actually showing up in the hospital, they're probably even more sick uh, and you know less likely to, to recover and turn around. So, so many things. So given, I think both of you really laid out how disparities um, is magnified in COVID and GI world. So us as providers, you know, we're always taught to be advocates for our patients too. How should we engage the situation and advocate for these more vulnerable populations? Any tools, tips, resources? I think in terms of, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, practically, I think the easiest thing that we could do that we can make an impact on on a daily basis with our patients in clinic that comes to you is really take a good social history in terms of what it is that their background is and what it is that they have to go home to and what it is that they've done, not just from a GI, because, you know, we focus on our GI, what we got to do from a, from a gastroenterology and hepatology perspective for these patients. But when, when we see them, we have to go back to being our roots in internal medicine and really ask them, like, what are you going home to? What is it that, when was the last time you saw your primary care provider in terms of your management of your hypertension, management of your diabetes, management of these things that we know are increased risk factors for having, well, having bad outcomes with COVID. And I think if we just take those extra two or three minutes to get to that, we can then talk to them about the things that COVID can cause in them. Because, you know, I I think sometimes we get focused on what we need to do as GI providers and we have our deadlines and everything that we have to do that's busy throughout our day. And sometimes we forget those things. And we have to remember we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, maybe colon cancer screening for this low-risk patient otherwise uh, is needs to, yes, it's important from what we have to do, but maybe we need to talk. Maybe this is the only doctor this patient's going to see in the next three or four months because of the backlog of everything that's happened. And I think that that's an opportunity for us to really make an impact, not only at the individual level, but you do that enough times a week, you're going to capture a huge amount of people that you would say, Hey, are you 65 and older? Maybe you should get your vaccine. These are the locations where you can get them done. And if if you don't want to get them, why are you not? What what are the reasons that concern you? Maybe let me educate you on these things. And it's simply just about talking to your patients about these things than just going through the day-to-day when and really focus on the fact we're in a pandemic. We can't just do the things that we normally did before this. We need to expand what it is that we need to provide for these patients. I absolutely agree. And I think that. Another thing that we've sort of been trained to do, right, which is, you know, in many ways, it's, there's a reason for that and it's appropriate, is that we focus a lot on the patient. You know, it's a, so it's a, absolutely true. We should be asking, you know, asking the patient's social history and understanding what, what some risk factors are, maybe not, a, you know, really understanding what makes this patient potentially vulnerable or not. But I also think that in addition to that, we need to start doing some more self-reflection and I think that 
you know, oftentimes we think about like, oh, well, this patient, you know, is is hesitant or isn't, you know, isn't following up or, or you know, whatever the case may be. And, and we tend to put the onus on the patient. And I think we need to start doing a lot more work in terms of, you know, well, how are we not making this easy, maybe for the patient, or again, understanding now what their social background is, and what their situation is, you know, is there something more that we could be doing? Uh, whether that's like, maybe, is there a language barrier? Are we really making it easy for, you know, interpretation services to be available? Do we have instructions multi- available in multiple languages? Or have we really clearly communicated that their immigration status is like not an issue here? You know, so I, I feel like there's a lot of things that we could be doing in a much more intentional way to, you know, again, really, if we, if we recognize that there is mistrust, how can we be more trustworthy? Like, how can we you know, make ourselves, you know, basically reach out. And again, asking uh, of the community, what what do you need from us? Like, what are we not doing right? And then address it that way. Okay, can I expand? So I think that's a great point, Sandra, in the sense of self-reflection. You know, I try and do this. Uh, one of one of my mentors taught me to do that, uh, this early in residency. And, uh, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget this. And it was, this was before COVID, but it, it goes along the same lines as you know, this this patient uh, w- was coming in with with issues related to obesity, and you know, I did all the checkpoints for whatever it is that their problems was. You know, related to their diabetes hypertension from a medical perspective. Uh, you know, you did all the things that you were trained to do, and then you're like, okay, you need to get this many hours of exercise in, etc. And I'll, I'll never forget, I, I didn't do the the social history aspect of this in terms of, you know, I got there, do you drink alcohol, do you, you know, what, you know, what are the basic things, you smoke cigarettes, drugs, or anything like that, but I didn't go into their, their home life. Well, it turns out that th- this particular patient lives in a neighborhood that was not conducive to going outside at all. They didn't have any local gyms or anything like that. And I was telling her, I told her, go outside and walk around. And I remember it formed this distrust that she had with me. And so after she goes, well, you told me to go outside. Well, that day, you know, there was gunshots and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, let me take a step back here for a second and think, did I treat myself or did I treat the patient in a way that I felt best to do this? You know, because I tried my best, but I, you know, I wasn't putting myself in their position. And then you have, once you start recognizing those things as a provider, you can then become a better provider to your patients on an individual basis. And again, it goes back to the same things you learned in medical school in terms of asking those questions. It takes an extra minute, if not more than that. And you could basically guide them in the direction, okay, well, here's a local YMCA close to where you live. Here's this and that that you could do, et cetera, for for you to get whatever it is that you need to get done. I think that self-reflection is, are we doing what we were trained to do? But that's not what this patient needs. I mean, or, or it is what this patient needs, but we need to find a way to get it them that access to it. I mean, I think that that's part of what our job should be to get them access to COVID vaccines. So actually, let's pull at that thread a little bit. Both of you are educators beyond being clinicians. So as we are beginning to train the next generation of providers, physicians, I think you. The, I think reflection is a huge piece. I think advocacy is a huge piece. What skills, micro skills, or other faculties would you develop or encourage the development of for trainees now looking to enter medicine today, so that they can address some of these disparities in healthcare that we're seeing? So, I mean, I can share 
some of the things that we're working on. And when you say trainees, the first thing I often think of is is actually medical students. But you know what I what I feel like we need to do is is at least at Maryland is is really make sure that we're addressing the whole pipeline, so our residents and our fellows as well. But you know, kind of getting back to what we started out with, which is you know first just to start off, just clarifying the fact that race is a social construct and that as we move forward, it's going to come up again and again and again. And we have to continually reinforce and remind people that as we see disparities, what these most are are, are outlining and telling us are about social disparity and inequity that then manifests in disease processes in these ways. And and I think how just like, you know, again, going around like the, the self-awareness, I think teaching trainees about bias and about the fact that, you know, there's individual level biases that we all have, that we all carry, as well as systemic level biases that are sort of built into the system. I, you know, and the other thing that I, I, I'm just going to throw out there is, you know, we're, we're using the word system a lot too. And especially for those of us who are educators or leaders, you know, in, in our spaces, we are the system. So, you know, it's not like this intangible thing. We have to think about how, how can we change and shift what we're doing? And we were all taught to do things in, I think, a certain way. And I think we're starting to hopefully realize that a lot of what we were taught wasn't really the best way to be taught. So I think teaching about that, encouraging case discussion that really opens the, the, the door for, you know, really kind of fleshing out the exercise of consideration of social determinants of health. And how would we walk through this scenario, you know, like, say, like the case that Carlos just sort of brought up, like use it as a teaching, you know, exercise and um, sort of walking through what are, so what would have been a better way if we could do this over again? What would be the questions that we should be asking during our social history that we want to take the extra two minutes to, to ask? So I think that's, you know, at least a place to start. And I will just put in a plug for the equity project that that's one of the things, you know, within the one of the domains of the equity project is that we're really hoping that from this work, we're going to have more tools, um, you know, curricular material for GI fellowship programs in particular to make sure that we have sort of a, a standard expectation of uh, really this type of discussion and training in, in GI fellowship programs. I, I think just as a GI fellowship program director, I'll weigh in that concrete resources for that would be very much appreciated because we have some great ones in our system. We have some great advocates in our system, but as a society and as a group of GI, I think there are definitely specific areas that we have to focus on as a, as a GI community and the hepatology community as well. Carlos, I want to give you a chance to weigh in there, though. So, you know, I I would say of the, the, the four of us, I'm the closest to this in terms of a still a trainee. But when I was a chief resident, uh, this, this is something that made a huge impact in my life and, and I carry it with me was, uh, like I mentioned earlier in my introduction, I, I, I got a chance to uh, work with Dr. Jones on some racial disparity things, particularly in hepatocellular carcinoma. And bottom line is what the study that we did showed that in uh, hepatocellular carcinoma patients that were black, they just have less of a chance of survival compared to all other races. Uh, and, you know, the question is why? Obviously, there's a lot of answers to that. You know, we adjusted for a lot of different things that could have been the case. 
and it got back to this point of, well, maybe is, is it on a screening aspect that, that something like this could be playing a role? And it, it got us looking into certain things like, you know, are, are, are people being screened appropriately, not just cirrhotics, but one of the things that, you know, we saw down here in Miami was that we have a very large Haitian population, which is pumped into that black population. And it just so happens that um, at a lot of, a lot of hospitals, uh, I work at University of Miami and Jackson Memorial Hospital, we take care of a lot of these patients. If you look at the research behind some of this, not just down here in Miami, but actually across the world, hepatitis B screening for HCC is incredibly poor. It's not it's just not not at the GI, not even at the HEP level, even though it is at that level, at the internal medicine level, which you know these patients in a lot of other uh, countries uh, are as their primary doctor that they'll go see for these things. And I took it one step further as chief resident to make this part of the curriculum in terms of cirrhosis and HCC screening. And why it was important to me was that understanding that race, ethnicity, equity, and all these things not only are important because it's the right thing for, for our patients and what we all strive to be is good people and try and make an impact in society, but it actually allows you to practice better medicine. And when you tell that to a yeah. physician, that is one of our goals. And so what did we do? We tried getting this a little bit implemented. Now, again, there's systems, things that need to get played, but we tried making it part of the curriculum, you know, to, to get HCC screening done a certain way, et cetera. And I had a little bit more of a tangible impact because I was a chief resident at that time. Um, and, you know, I was teaching a curriculum based on that. Now that I had my biases because I, I, I wanted to make, you know, that was where I felt that we could do this. So I, I taught it in, in teaching sessions at least once a week. Uh, with different residents at different times, it was a forced sort of thing that they had to go through. And, and a lot of the answers, you know, they didn't feel that they didn't know that this was a problem until we showed them the data. Uh, and then one of my other colleagues did a study showing uh, that this was uh, a thing, Dr. Mahmoud Mahfouz and a couple others with Dr. Jones again. And, and at the trainee level, at the trainee level across three different residency programs and a GI fellowship training program. So the, the reason I, I bring this up is if you could motivate someone, uh, I, I forget that it's the right thing to do because that's what we all want, obviously. But if you could prove, and I think that that's what we all want as physicians, is how can I be a better doctor? That this, that that basically addressing these racial disparities will make you a better doctor because you're going to be able to know the risks that these patients are put at um, by not doing the things that you need to do. Then you know that holds us accountable to being to doing these things uh, that that I just mentioned. And, and just going a little bit further, uh, concrete things. One of the things that we were talking about is maybe DDSEP needs to have questions uh, related to this. Not just, you know, again, you know, I think that race, ethnicity and all these topics, they get put into this. OK, well, you know, this is important, but, you know, we could we could figure it out as to, you know, how we need to do this. Yes, we understand that these people have less access to care, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not just that. It's that you will miss a huge proportion of people that you could do preventative care medicine for them and make a huge impact in their lives um, by using these tools. And if you put it on board materials and stuff like that, it forces us to think that these are things that are going to be on our board exams. And anything that you put on a board exam is fair game. So that's how you, you change culture. That's how you get people to really be engaged in this sort of work. And that's hopefully what we're able to do. Amen, Carlos. That's definitely, we've actually been having some conversations with the, I think it's the education and training committee and the staff liaison that have been, uh, you know, sort of the keepers of DDSEP. And we've, we've started to engage in that conversation about, you know, what can we incorporate into DDSEP as well? So I love that you brought 
that up and and hopefully we'll see we'll see that coming down the pike and i just want to like i just want to like underscore something that carlos said about like again it's we're not just doing this because it's like noble and it makes us feel virtuous but it does make us better doctors and and we're actually more scientific uh so you know one of the things that we've been doing at my institution is basically reviewing every presentation every powerpoint that's being presented for this for medical students to look for bias whether it's racial bias gender bias you know all the biases and and trying to trying to mitigate that trying to you know see if we can you know what can we do to 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 minimize that before it goes to the medical students because our students are always awesome right about giving us feedback afterward and they're like you know this lecturer did this or said that and so we're trying to preemptively do you know do everything we can to to really optimize the material even before it gets to the students understanding it's never going to be perfect we're still going to continually need that feedback and and improve but you know my own lecture had to get reviewed recently and I I teach small bowel diseases and so you know wedged in there somewhere was a slide on Whipple disease and um and, I, you know, and this was a lecture that I had inherited from someone who had given it for many, many years before. I've been given it for, I think, a good seven years or something. And, you know, you tweak and you update things. But a lot of it was not that different from the person that, you know, had given it to me. And so anyway, now through this review process, a colleague, a, a wonderful friend who is a family medicine doc was just looking through my, you know, she's reviewing my slides. She happens to be uh, one of our unconscious bias trainers. So that's who we targeted to, to review the slides. Anyway, so she's like, she noticed that there was a line on the slide about Whipple's about there being a male predominance. And then she was like, could you just explain or like, why is that? Or is there more information about why that is? And I was like, yeah, I don't know why that is. So I was like, All right, okay, I'll, I'll uh, thank you for that feedback. I'm going to look that up. And then I did, and then I saw that more recent studies have shown that there is no gender predominance, actually. And it's actually now, it's all genders are equally at risk for Whipples. Um, and it was based on old, very small studies that mostly looked at men that basically created this assumption that this is a mostly a men's disease. So, you know, I was really grateful for that. And I feel like that's what I'm talking about. Like, we have to challenge these things that we were taught that, and we just sort of accept as true. And then if you actually dig deeper and you ask those questions, like, why? Why is this disparity there? Or why is this difference? Why does it exist? We may sometimes find out that, actually, it was based on very poor, very weak science. And, and we need to do a better job of really clarifying and answering those questions. Absolutely. I, I absolutely love the idea of editing slides, not for grammatical mistakes, not for time or kind of just updates, but actually looking at the subtleties and the potential biases. Um, I, I think this is the first time I actually have heard that we've been discussing it in our medical school. Uh, one of my colleagues, Taranjit Ahuja, I'll give her a shout out, has actually specifically sent, spent time kind of making sure that all of the slides are inclusive in terms of the families they represent mm-hmm. and the yep. cultures they represent. I, I know we as a group have talked about uh, when discussing obesity or, or NASH, uh, when we talk about dietary changes, it has to be culturally appropriate dietary changes. And actually one of the wonderful things, one of the resources she's put together has been 
has been like the my plate samples, but has made about 20 different culturally appropriate my plate examples to use for different patients, um, which goes to kind of some of these points as well. But Sandra, I absolutely love what you guys are doing at Maryland with the slide review. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's a it's a huge lift, but it's definitely worth it. Yeah, that, that's time consuming. Do culturally competent low FODMAP diets for IBS patients. I just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, and man. The, my mind just like, woo. <laughs> I mean, this may be off track. A culturally appropriate low FODMAP diet. Tell Carlos, us more. Yes, please tell I, us more. Listen, we'll put the PDF in the liner notes because I'm pretty sure every listener just popped up. Someone swerved off the road while driving now, Carlos. <laughs> Matt, you, you you just, it sparked in my head when you said that. I thought it was like, that's true. Like, you know, we have so many patients that that you say that, you know, oh, you should eat this, but you're like, that. they don't even know what that food is. They might not have even heard it from yes. or something like that, whatever the case might be. And uh, I was joking, but I mean, I, I think it's true. Like, I mean, if you, you know, I always go to the same uh, Google low FODMAP diet and uh, uh, to show patients what it is that I should or shouldn't be using for them. But uh, if we could make it more culturally confident, I think uh, maybe we could get a little bit less IBS complaints, if you hear me saying. <laughs> I think that was a harsh tease as to, I thought there was a real document already. But oh, I was totally, coming. I, I was joking. Yeah. I, I really, me the money, I, I threw it out there as a, as maybe it needs to be constructed. That's uh, what can I say? I, I just, it popped into my head. I, I just felt I needed to say it. <laughs> Carlos, I I think you have your first faculty project ahead of you right now, man. I, I think it's actually a pretty good idea. I'm not going to lie. I, I it too. All right. I think that's why we're getting so excited. And you can have 30 different versions for different cultures, right? Totally. Yeah, which, fermentable, which fermentable oligosaccharide am I going to choose? <laughs> How about other areas? Like you mentioned um, small bowel. You mentioned low FODMAP IBS. How about and cancer, liver cancer, colon cancer, pain control? Are there other areas, like you said, Sandra, that we may have been taught in one way, but that we have unconscious bias and that maybe you can help illuminate us? Well, in GI. Yes. So, so this is I say I think technically it does still fall within GI because we often are the sedation providers. So because you you brought up pain control, and um, that's something that's been also pretty well documented is that patients of color are less likely to get proper analgesia, and there's like and that could be either based on biases that people have that think that they're also more prone to addiction. It also could be because, unfortunately, again, getting back to people thinking that there are biological differences by race. So thinking that, I mean, there's actually a study that showed that medical students and residents within an institution thought that black patients have thicker skin and, and are less likely to feel pain, that their blood coagulates more quickly. I mean, just like, and again, they, you know, we are immersed in narratives, right? And then we bring them with us to medicine. And so if we're not in medicine, like actively breaking that down and being like, no, that's not right. That's not true. All of your patients are experiencing, you know, have just as much uh, potential for real pain and deserve and need um, proper analgesia. So I think that that's like, it's actually been, I don't think I've seen any study where that's been looked at and comparing whether or not 
across race if there's a difference in, in sedation during GI cases. But that would be sort of an interesting thing to, to think about. But I think for all of us, as we're doing that in our procedures, to check ourselves, right, and just kind of, you know, make sure that we're not potentially treating our patients differently um, in terms of how we're, how we're providing, you know, comfort and, and pain control. And then I guess another one, I'll, as far as just racial disparities in GI, I, I'm I'm an I'm an IBDologist, so I, I think more about IBD. And you know, if there's one thing that you know we we've definitely seen is that black patients are less likely to be on biologic therapy, even though they often have more complex disease. So it doesn't doesn't make sense, right? And so I think it, and actually, an interesting study in Canada. It wasn't necessarily, uh, they, they didn't do as much comparison by race. They did it actually by socioeconomic status. But I thought it was fascinating to see that even in a country where their healthcare system is universal, you still yeah. saw that in I, you know, IBD patients of lower socioeconomic status have worse outcomes, more hospitalizations, more severe disease. And so it just, you know, it just sort of emphasizes how it's not just about health insurance access, even though that is very important. It's so much bigger and broader than that. I think um, I don't have any specific other examples where, I mean, I could pinpoint, but I think the broader sense is as us as providers, as we read through the literature, just going back to Sandra's Whipple uh, disease comments, I think we have to ask the question, why? So many more times than, than we do. We sort of just accept information that's thrown at us. And, uh, you know, I, I try, I try and not do that, but, you know, we're sort of trained because if, if our, if somebody in, in the hierarchy of things tells us this is the way something is, you sort of, okay, this is what my mentor is teaching me. This is the way it is. And I think not, not to challenge them directly, but to just, let me read up on this. Let me look up to see what it is. And I think you need to look at the studies more in detail, uh, like we do in, in critical reviews of, of most articles and stuff like that. And understand that anything that affects one race more so than another, uh, you have to say, why is this? Why, why is this happening uh, more so? And I think that what the more you answer or ask that question, the more you'll see fallacies in some of the details as to what is being taught to you. So it just goes back to the age-old question of why. Yeah, I try to. I don't know what uh, Sandra. I don't know what you do with your fellows when you're on service, but I find whenever I can't answer the question with data. And in my head, the response is because it's what we do. Like that's that's the red flag for me. Yeah. Where I'm like, you know what? Can some like I'll assign the homework to someone. The, the yeah. perk of having fellows, they'll yeah. do the homework. <laughs> Which is like, okay, let's answer why we're doing this. Why should we do this procedure now? Why should we choose this medication over this? And really, not as Carlos was suggesting, relying on the expertise that was handed down to us which probably is accurate the vast majority of the time, but we miss so much of this and we miss the changes because we're doing what we were taught. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. That's always like a great, so if there's like a resident on the team, you're like, hey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Come here, hon. We're going to. Well, we're gonna- <laughs> I, I can tell you as, as a. As a <laughs> Come here, residents. <laughs> I can tell you as as a fellow and most of my my co-fellows and other you know I've talked about this with other you know we really find it really refreshing when our attendings give us that power to be like you know what 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 you teach me what what's going on here what what is it that you think about what's happening and I mean you might not know the answer at that time but it gives you an opportunity to to do that I mean this is just not with racial diversity issues this is with everything but 
I mean, to tap into that, I think from a teaching perspective, I think that just asking that question, why so many times and just not accepting point blank information, unless you really understand the details behind it. Yeah, I really, I I really appreciate too, Matt, that you, you know, that you said that you do that during rounds, right? Because I think sometimes part of the reason why we fall into this trap of just sort of, we're just doing it because this is the way it's done is it's also, we don't like not looking like we know what we're doing, <laughs> you know, like we, we want to, you know, present ourselves as like, no, this is the way it is. And this is how it's done. And, and we like to sort of, con, you know, affirm ourselves that way. And it's uncomfortable, right. To question yourself and to, and to question certainly your mentors and, and, and the people that, you know, this is, you know, this, this amazing person taught me this. And so it must be right. And so I think it's, you know, again, moving away from thinking about it in such a personal way, but just sort of thinking about it as a more like, if anything, this is why, this is what makes us that much more of an expert is because we challenge things and because we, you know, we seek to understand more deeply why we do the things that we do and, and, you know, what is the data to support that? And maybe it's not as strong as, as we, you know, as we assumed. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, yeah. I won't go off on a tangent about this, <laughs> <laughs> but this is a whole other podcast. So I am curious, could we talk for a few moments about the AGA diversity committee and the AGA equity project and kind of, are we expecting to see um, some increased programming at DDW as a result of, of these committees and these projects? Are we expecting, we were talking about the resources earlier that might be coming down the pipeline and I'm also curious how our listeners can get involved, because I think a lot of time when we talk about these issues, it's important to all of us and that we're just not sure what to do with the next step. So I'm wondering how people can get involved with this, uh, with the two of you and tell us what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can I can start with uh, first with the diversity committee. I mean, I think that the diversity committee alone is a great example of why you know, the AGA is an organization that honestly for decades has been very committed to diversity and, and, you know, the work of that committee has often been about trying to increase and amplify visibility of you know, diversity focused programming at DDW, uh, looking at diversifying the membership and the leadership. So, you know, one of our things we've been working on was making sure that members and committee members and chairs, et cetera, all were identifying, or at least, uh, you know, even if they just want to opt out, that's fine, you can opt out, but at least you, you've indicated, you know, how you identify so that we can even understand what our baseline is and, and kind of move forward. So last summer, you know, just obviously with uh, the increased awareness and, and everyone just having an, a better understanding about racial injustice and, and, and looking for concrete action towards social and racial justice. Um, I think the AGA governing board in particular was really galvanized to want to see bigger and broader action throughout the organization. So that's why, and really just recognizing that honestly, if you want that, it's not one committee. One, the, the diversity committee alone really can't make like a total transformation of the entire organization. Like every committee, every group, really every member should be invested and in, in, in working towards it. So that was what the the vision for the equity project was and is, is basically sort of envisioning, you know, taking stock of where we are now and then where do we want to be in three years from now, for example. So even I would argue a relatively short-term multi-year plan to get 
towards equity, basically achieving equity and eradicating GI health disparities. So we identified like six domain areas and and we're going to see if I can name them off the top of my head. But, you know, the first being like really centering around, um, it's, we call it justice, equity, education. So centering around advocacy and education. The second around research and then uh, leadership and recognition, bias, and engaging the next generation. Those are, those are our uh, main domain areas. So anything from um, increasing the visibility and awareness uh, and recognizing the, the disparities work that many of our members are doing, and whether that's at DBW or through social media and through, you know, other platforms and, and awards, for example. I mean, that's sort of part of the, you know, you mentioned that earlier. But that's, that's, again, part of just recognizing that we do have folks who are dedicated to this or doing that work, making sure that there is high-quality, state-of-the-art research that's focusing on GI diseases in vulnerable populations, right? And so in raising funds, and we had an amazing advocacy day to raise funds to uh, support that kind of work. And since you asked about like how people can get involved, I mean, I think the engaging next generation domain is like the really um, most relevant one here, because that's actually, I think, the one that we all hang our hats on, because obviously we can do a lot of things now, but if we don't really build and develop our future leaders in GI, then we, you know, we're we're taking the risk that we're going to lose momentum and we want to make sure that we are, you know, we want to basically develop a very engaged and vocal um, early career and trainee membership throughout the organization. So that's definitely something, you know, that's actually a hundred percent why we wanted Carlos on the advisory board. You know, if we were like, we can't talk about wanting to engage trainees and not have trainee representation and the trainee voice in our work. Um, so you're going to see, hopefully, you know, this first year was a sort of like establishing the the goals, engaging the different committees, hopefully helping people understand what the expectations are and tasks moving forward. I think the next year, this next fiscal year, which starts in April, is where you're going to see even more um, sort of amped up activities. But anything from um, revising clinical guidelines, patient education materials, you know, it's really, I, I would say, far reaching and uh, pretty exciting. So we do hope that anyone who's interested and wants to be part of that, wants to contribute to the work that, that we're doing, for sure, anyone can always feel free to certainly email me directly. And I guess I can, I don't know if I should put my email in the chat, or I can just say it, I guess. <laughs> what do you think? Well, no one else can see the chat. So you're yeah, going to have to I guess it. I'll just say it. So <laughs> yeah, this is true. So I'm <laughs> S Q U E Z A D A at S O N dot U M A R Y L A N D dot edu, so Maryland dot edu, or our amazing staff leads on uh, Selena Nuquay in the AGA, who's just like, she's just absolutely instrumental in everything that we do in the Equity Project. So C N U Q U A Y at gastro.org. Um, she definitely, I think, is a great point person too, because she can also, you know, she, she knows better than me about sometimes like who the who the staff liaison is for a particular committee and can help um, direct folks in the right direction. Let us know your contact info too, in case people want to reach out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So I'd, let me let me just say too, I was very fortunate to have been recruited to be a part of this uh, project 
and the summer under, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to have Dr. Maria Breo as an advocate for myself and make an impact such as this. As a fellow, I thought it was really cool that uh, the committee uh, wanted to include a fellow and uh, I take it as an unbelievable opportunity to, to, to be a part of it. You know, I could tell you from our group sessions, you know, I, I want to be completely honest. This is, this is, even though I have done work and stuff like this and, and has done research and, you know, this is all stuff that's new to me. And it's, it's, it's a really unbelievable learning opportunity um, to see how these things are done and, and how the groups meet. Everybody's super excited to really make an impact. And it's, it's something that I see uh, holding on, like, like Sandra said, uh, for the next generation uh, going on. And I, I, you know, hopefully I could be a part of that. And, uh, you know, I just want to say that Sandra has been an unbelievable leader her and Byron Cryer as well uh, in terms of leading the way. So I want to give her props out uh, in this forum because uh, she really has put her heart and soul into this. So it's really uh, an important thing to, to give her uh, a lot of credit along with the rest of the committee. I'm not, I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but she, she's been a really huge part of this. And I want to say thank you for that. In terms of my contact information, I could be reached at crd43 at med.miami.edu. Uh, but, but thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Carlos. You're amazing. And, you know, I guess I, I wanted to put in one other plug too. I, probably sometime in April, I don't know the date, but Bisher Omery, our, our president, current president for AGA, who's also been just like a tremendous champion for the Equity Project, is planning a town hall where our Byron Cryer and I will be able to kind of give more updates on on progress on the project for anyone who's interested in kind of following along where we are with that. We can try to make sure that's in the liner notes of this episode for those that are interested. So as we're winding down, and maybe the question's a little different for both of you, um, we, we've been asking everyone that's been a guest on this podcast, what is the best career advice they got? And what's the advice they pass on to their mentees? Now, Carlos, I'm sure you have mentees already, but we can start with Sandra. Yeah, best career advice. I mean, I feel like that is a little bit hard just because we get so much great career advice. But I will say probably it's sort of like one led to what what I consider my best career advice is not the thing that I think is my best that I give. <laughs> so when I was told to get have multiple mentors, that you know that no no one mentor can give you everything that you need and that you really need to have mentors in different spaces and this was like so painfully true for me where i feel like like my work is very very you know it crosses over very different spectrums so like you know there's gi and then there's medical education and there's admissions and there's you know my edi work and so yeah, I, over time, and it's not that I got them all at once, right? But I've recognized that over time, I needed to have different mentors to kind of help guide me at different times. So I I do often recommend to people, you know, by no means should you expect that, you know, you can learn everything you need out of one mentor. It's sort of not fair to think that any one mentor can do all of that. But also, it's just, you know, you're, you're, you're selling yourself short if you're really not, you know, developing those relationships with people who will be mentors and sponsors and champions um, moving forward that have different areas of expertise. But the other thing that, or the other piece of, like, I guess, advice that I like to give to people, and I think it's because I realized that I needed to to say it to myself often, is that at the end of the day, you have to find your own path. 
And and as much as we are in many ways, you know, we, we feel very indebted to those people who trained us, we don't actually literally owe them. <laughs> so you uh, absolutely want to be grateful. You want to support them and, and continue to, um, you know, in whatever way, continue to collaborate, but that it's also okay if you feel like you want to break away and you want to do something different to explore that. And then again, to find a, a mentor in that space. If, if your, your previous mentor isn't, you know, maybe the right person for that, you know, that that's not, you know, it's, it's not that you're being, you know, disloyal in any way, but you're again, broadening your horizons. And so, you know, I actually just, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with people, you know, not, you know, not too long ago, who honestly, I think felt like a weight was taken off their shoulders. And, and honestly, I can tell you that when I kind of came to that realization myself, like it was, it's okay, it's okay that I'm not doing like the exact same thing that my mentor was doing and that I've, you know, that I have changed it up big time and I'm doing really different things and that's totally fine. We all have to find our own way. I, I think I think that that's uh, great advice. You harped on some of the things that I was going to say. I think throughout your training, you know, first and foremost, and I, I learned this from a couple of my mentors. You should have multiple mentors. Different perspectives on what you should feel. You know, one mentor is not going to get jealous that you're working with the other or anything like that. Um, and sometimes, you know, as, especially go, you know, growing through the ranks as a resident and stuff, you want to make sure that you, you do all the right things and to to, to get into the you know all with with everyone. And uh, I think you, like you're saying, you got to make your own path. You got to do the things that make you the most happy, even if it's different from some of the things other mentors have taught you, whatever it is that you want to do, this is your life, you know, do whatever it is that makes you happy or, or at least think you do, you know, you can't, you got, if you want to test un, uncharted waters, then if that's something you feel comfortable doing, then do it. And if not, if you want to stay doing whatever it is that you're doing, then do that. But whatever it is, make a personal decision that's right for you. And that's all you could tell yourself with no regrets. The one thing I will say that I, I, I probably had to learn this the hard way so many times is learn when to say no to things. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't feel that just because someone asks you to do something that you have to say yes. I could tell you I've said yes too many times to so many things. And, you know, the balance between your personal life, between your career Sometimes things get shuffled in a, you know, as a, especially as a resident or fellow, your life's already super busy to begin with. Um, and, you know, if you take on too many responsibilities, this chair of this thing or this research project, and you already have two other ones that are waiting for a manuscript and stuff like that, you got to really put, you know, be real to yourself. There's some people that could manage all those things and that's fine. But if you feel that you're doing it just to appease someone else, that's when you really have to say no and do things that you're passionate about. That's basically the way that you'll always be happy in life. Um, so if you feel that that this is something that makes you happy, then go for it. And I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a young career GI, so I, I I understand that you guys have much more loads of info. But that's sort of what I learned along the way. And it took me uh, that no thing took me a really hard time to to really get to. It really it, it even took me to like second year of fellowship to really be like, no, I can't cannot do this right now. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I'll put these other people that might be able to have the time to do it. But, you know, you have to be able to, to put things in perspective. Carlos, that is like such a gem. And I can assure you that it's going to come in very handy as a young faculty or early career faculty, because that's when they're really, you know, even more throwing like, oh, guess what? You get to be the director of this. And yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
to close, where can people follow you on Twitter? Yes, I I just as of the summer now am on Twitter. It's my only social media platform. So please come follow me. I am uh, S-A-N-D-R-A-Q-U-E-Z-A-D-A-M-D. So Sandra Kizada, M-D. And I'm at, uh, at D-R Carlos D-S-G-I. So at Dr. Carlos D-S-G-I. That's my Twitter handle. I too, I, I, I've been on Twitter for some time, but I can't say I have this huge following, but hopefully after this podcast, maybe. <laughs> You already have one more follower as of today, Carlos. <laughs> two more, buddy. Two more. <laughs> well, it was great having you guys on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJ Whitson MD, at Nina Nandy MD, and at CSC MD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one. <laughs>